It is a verb. It's always good when John Mayer plagiarizes Paul, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's good to listen to John Mayer. It's better to abide with Paul as he abides with Christ. Welcome. We're in the middle of a series called How He Built This. If you've not been around for long, um, we have been working through, as we start our 20th year together, gathering as a group of Christ followers in this city, uh, this metroplex, Dallas and Fort Worth and Plano and uh, Frisco, of what has happened here, how he, the he is God, built this. The, the built this is not the buildings and not, not the, um, the campuses. The built this is people who are together experiencing what God says kingdom people should experience. And we're just reminding ourselves how he, God, built this. There was somebody that um, recently was with us and, and uh, they came up to me afterwards and they go, man, it's unbelievable. How, how, did, this, how did this happen? And they go, what do you mean? They go, how did this happen? And they pointed to the thousands of you and the buildings that we were in. And I go, oh, well, that's easy, man. We didn't care about this. We don't care about buildings and even numbers of people. We care deeply about being people who, because God loved us, that we loved others. We, we, we realized that we couldn't love others. We couldn't do the verb the way that God wanted us to do wanted us to if, if we didn't have a relationship with him and hadn't been reconciled to the source of love, who is God. Love is a verb. It's not a feeling you feel when you feel like you've never felt before, right? And that's how most of us kind of think what love is. I recently was talking to one of my kids who was kind of starting to feel some emotions towards uh, somebody, and I just was listening to him, and I was asking him what he wanted to do with those emotions, and he was pretty sure that he was gonna drop out of high school and get married and, um, <laughs> you know, start to provide and I just said, listen, this is what's called puppy love, okay? And, uh, and they were offended by that phrase. I go, no, 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 I'm not saying you're a puppy, right? You're a man. You can, you know, you're ready, okay? Um, kind of. But, uh, but puppy love, okay, puppy love is, is called that because there's this intense feeling you get like when you're in a mall and you're walking to a pet shop and then you go in there and then just, you know, and they're looking at you, and they're pressing their little nose, and they lick your hand, and you're like, I've got to have this. This is going to be the most amazing experience of my life. You're at a park. Somebody's got a little cardboard box, and there's eight little fluffy little things that are sticking their heads over, wagging their tail because they saw you, and you're like, I am ready to give my life and soul to this puppy. They can defecate on my carpet. They can chew my leather couch. I'll never take a vacation again. See, that's what happens when you get a puppy. But you don't realize that when you have puppy love, right? You're like, I will give my life to you for the next 13 dog years. And then you get a puppy and you're like, wow, what have I done? <laughs> Marriage is like that. <laughs> and not ours, baby, but just marriage in general. <laughs> marriage in general. I, uh, you know, you've got to learn that love is a verb, it's not a feeling. Right? That's what the Bible says when Paul was talking about this. He says, love, watch this, this is John Mayer ripping off Paul. Love is patient. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is patient. Love is kind. Love isn't jealous. It never is bothered when somebody else is experiencing a blessing. It's fired up about it. It doesn't boast. It's not arrogant. Scripture says love doesn't act unbecomingly. Love isn't provoked. Love doesn't seek its own. Love doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. Love never rejoices in unrighteousness, which is why even in the context of a marriage, 
when, when somebody's doing something that's not best because you love them, you don't just go, oh, it's okay, and you know, uh, boys will be boys, and that's just kind of way people are sometimes. No, you, you just go, hey, I love you enough to talk about this. Love always rejoices with the truth. Love is a verb, it bears all things. Love is a verb, it believes all things. Love is a verb, it endures all things. It hopes all things. Love never fails. Love does, man. And we will never be those kind of people unless we are first loved. I mean, that kind of love is not natural. It is supernatural. It is a God-infused love that can only be explained by God that changes people. And it's why Jesus said, listen, if you're gonna be my people, then you're gonna have to love the way that I love. And so he says this in John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. That wasn't new. That's been around since, you know, frankly, um, the beginning of God's communicating to man about how he wanted us to operate, to love God and love others. But he said, this is the deal. You gotta love others even as I have loved you. And he's modeled for them what that was. It was sacrificial, selfless, do nothing from emptiness, uh, from, from selfish conceit or, or vanity, but uh, don't merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others kind of love. Like no one takes my life from me, but I go and I lay it down kind of love. No greater love does a man have than this that he gives his life for his friends. No greater love is this than though I'm rich for your sake, I become poor that through my poverty you might become rich. That's the kind of love that Jesus said. I wanna see it. And people go, that's a radical, crazy love. Who hangs around and loves like that? Because our whole world is just committed to emotional love and feeling love. You know, love is a verb, and when you love that way, when you love this way, Jesus says, the world's gonna just go, wow, there's something different about you people. You must have learned to love from the greatest lover that ever lived, and that's who Jesus was. But when you don't love that way, the world's gonna have a right to say, you must not be somebody who even learned from Jesus. Now watch, this is just being a student of Jesus. The world still to this day loves Jesus. They, they, they don't speak poorly about him. Mormons embrace Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses embrace Jesus. Hindus embrace Jesus. Muslims embrace Jesus. Even atheists embrace Jesus, the rabbi, the teacher. They don't deny that he existed. They know that there's no way to do that in the context of history. And what they say is, man, listen, if you're one of Jesus' disciples, then you would love as he loved. And Jesus says just that. He says in John 13, 34 and 35, I want you to love the way that I've loved. And he says, by this, by your love, that's gonna be the thing that's gonna mark you as my disciple. If you have love for one another, man, that's the thing. Now I'm gonna say this, I, I believe that what's happening here in this little gathering of, of friends who have been loved by God, I think we have been by the grace of God as we depend upon him. That's why we've done this series the way we've done this, okay? We, we've, we've talked about how we've done this. We, by, by abiding with Jesus and we, we are one with him as we yield to the intimacy we have with the Father because of the love expressed through the Son that he gave his life for us that we can be reconciled to God and therefore reconciled to God. We have his spirit, which means we don't think with the spirit of man which says, I'll love you as long as it feels right and as long as the puppy wags his tail and licks me and makes me happy, but you start chewing my furniture and defecating in my life, I'm out. But that's not the way that Jesus loves. Sovereign love says I'm sticking around, man, through all the chewed shoes of life. And as we've done that, as prayerful people 
who bear the fruit of a relationship with Christ, God's built this thing. That's why the first week we just talked about abiding. He built this through our abiding with him. He built this through our faith in him, our faith that God wanted to do something to make his love known in the world today. And so we said, Lord, if you're willing, why not with us? And then we just said, Lord, we're not gonna try and be big or impressive or, 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 or accumulate followers for ourselves. We don't really care about big, we care about biblical. That gets to my statement. How do we do this? We didn't care about this. We cared about Jesus and loving in his name according to his spirit and his power which mightily works within us. Now watch, Gandhi loved Jesus, but he was not a Christ follower. Why? Because he said, hey, I like your Christ. I just don't like your Christians when he was talking about why he rejected Christianity. He said, you, you Christians are so unlike Christ. And yet, Gandhi would tell you that he expressed high regard for Jesus, that most of his humanitarian ethic came from Jesus, but he felt Christians, the ones that he knew, mistreated him, and so he rejected Christianity and embraced what he called Hinduism. And he just said, I don't think, not only are you, you guys not followers of Jesus, but I don't think Jesus is who he says he was. Watch what I mean by that, because love has to be our mark. In John chapter 17, Jesus uh, was talking to his disciples, and he, and he was um, um, encouraging them that, that, that they could be the light of the world, and he moved quickly from talking and encouraging them to praying to the Father that they would be what he wants them to be, that the church, the people that God created, would actually be so radically different and so supernaturally um, able to love because they were yoked with God and the life which they now live, they live by faith and not by feeling, that the world would go, something about you people is different. Even though you're uneducated and untrained, you must have been with Jesus and Jesus says he yokes you with God and God must be loved because you're loving people. And Jesus is who he says he was. Watch, follow Jesus' argument in John 17. He says, Father, like you've sent me into the world, so I'm gonna send you uh, these other guys. And for their sake, I'm going to become everything that you wanted me to be. I'm gonna sanctify myself. You know, I'm gonna go and be a provision on the cross so that they can be in truth. And then it, it, he goes and he says this in verse 20. He says, Father, I'm gonna ask, not just on behalf of these 11 that are here right there you know, over my shoulder. I'm not gonna ask just on, um, on their behalf, but I'm gonna ask that all who believe in me through their word, they testify about me as the Spirit of God enables them to, to um, supernaturally remember whatever details God wanted us to remember, that God would produce a perfect book through imperfect men, infallible writing through fallible men, that God said, I'm gonna do that. And he says that people that believe in who I am through these eyewitnesses accounts in history and through the testimony of what I did, Lord, that you would produce in them this oneness. Now watch, this oneness that they would all be one, even as Father you and me are one. That they might be one in us so that, this is key, so that the world may believe that I am the Messiah that you sent me. In other words, Jesus says, even people that don't embrace Jesus as Messiah will reject you as a follower of Jesus if you don't love. But he says the world will reject the idea that Jesus is the Messiah if his people who are called by his name don't love one another. The church won't be what God intends it to be, which is the body of Christ, the visible image, if you will, of right now, the invisible Jesus. The church won't be something that people love. The church will be something people run from. And Jesus will not be embraced 
as the hope of the world. This is a big deal. This is a really big deal. Um, I, I think about what's happening out there. You guys know who Anne Rice is. Anne Rice wrote a lot of those vampire um, novels that were out there. Later in her life, Anne Rice made a profession um, that Jesus was her Messiah. But what happened is she was introduced then into a community of people that she didn't see their love for one another. And this is what Anne Rice, Rice wrote years after making a profession of Christ. She said this, for those who care, and I understand if you don't, today I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ as always, but not to being a Christian or being part of Christianity. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. For 10 years, I've tried. I've failed. I'm an outsider. My conscience will allow me nothing else but to say, I don't want to be associated with them. Now, like Gandhi, who apparently didn't see real Christ followers, I don't think Anne Rice was walking around real Christians. Because real Christians know that love is a verb and are never marked by these things. In fact, this book is replete with exhortations to not be the very things that she said, I can't do this anymore. Jesus doesn't want us to do hate and maliciousness and hostility and quarrels and disputations. He wants the love of God to be more and more renowned through us. It's how he built this place. He built this place because I have seen so many of you radically love in a way that is sacrificial, in a way that is other-centered, in a way that does nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. I've seen you with humility of mind consider others as more important than yourself. I've got story after story after story. I don't have time to talk about all the ways that you all have famously loved one another, but we're gonna talk about it a little bit. We are God's people, and because we're God's people, love should mark us. In fact, if we don't have love as our mark, we are not Jesus's church. And it doesn't matter what else that we're doing, how many folks are hanging around, it doesn't matter if we are not loving. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says, hey, it's great that you're people of faith because faith is important. In fact, Hebrews eleven six 6 says this. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Look, you'll never do anything pleasing to God if you don't do it by faith. It says, because for those who come to God must believe that he is exactly who he says he was, the, redeem the redeemer of humanity, the hope of the world, the provision for our sins, the God who is life. And that he rewards those who seek him. Not who try and build a resume and serve him for years and eventually make the grade, but those who seek grace and mercy in him. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn and are brokenhearted over sin. Blessed are those who are meek underneath the provision of God. Those are the ones that seek him and know that God is the one who provides grace to those who seek it. Jesus says that, um, that you uh, can have all the faith. I mean, you can do whatever you want, but if you don't do it by faith, it's impossible to please me. Hope, the scripture says, is really important because hope deferred, Proverbs 13 says, makes the heart sick. Um, Hebrews talks about the fact that if we uh, don't hold fast to our hope, we will not be the people God wants us to be. You're not going to do well here long without hope. Now faith, you can't please God without it. Hope, you won't live well long if you don't have it, but there's something greater. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. It says, now these three things remain. It says faith, hope, and love. They remain. But the greatest of these 
is love. It's our mark. And our world is irresistibly drawn to it when they see it because our world, the world that we live in, has been made in the image of God. And, and so they, they, when they see, they see this love that every human being was created to experience and to walk in, when they see it expressed, they, they, they can't help but go, hey, what, what is that? What's going on there? And we're supposed to say what you're seeing here is a glimpse of God's kingdom. It's what God intends. But it only happens when there is supernatural love. Now, I want to warn people that love is such a valuable thing that the enemy uses it a lot as a counterfeit. Cults are built on false love and fake love. They act like they care about you. They take you into their family. Charles Manson was famous for saying that, hey, your kids, that you were too busy making money and uh, chasing suburban wealth, okay, that you left your kids for your businesses and your country clubs, those were the kids that Manson had follow him and became part of the Manson family. They asked Manson, how in the world did you get these people to be murderous, lecherous, followers of you in your wickedness and commit murder for you. And he said, it's easy. They were your kids. You turned them out and I took them in. I showed them what they thought was love. I gave them a family. I paid attention to them. And because of that, I got them to do awful things. It's why it says in the scripture that even the enemy, Satan, presents himself as an angel of light. It's why girls, those of you guys that have been hurt again and again by guys, you're hurt by guys that say, baby, come here, man, I love you. I'll take care of you. You matter to me. And they seduce you with words that aren't verbs in their life. Love is powerful. And it should be our absolute mark. What I want to do is I just want to walk you through just a few things, man, that the Scripture says that love does. I want to give you illustrations of what's happening right here. And I want to talk about the fact that there's no way that we can do it if we don't depend upon him. Let me just make it really clear. We've got to have faith because without faith, we will not believe in God. Without believing in God and trusting in his provision, we won't have the spirit. Without the spirit, we will not bear the fruit of supernatural love. We'll be just like Manson. We'll be just like um, guys that are trying to pick up girls and making them join our little club. We'll give you enough niceties. We'll maybe love you enough to play music you like, create environments that you like, messages that are palatable because we love you. No, we just want something from you. Or we're going to love you the way Christ loved you. And when we love you that way, the world's gonna know that God's people have been among them. And it's gonna be a beautiful thing. Without love, we are nothing. It's again what scripture says. If we don't love, then we're not God's people. Listen to 1 John chapter four. It says this, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. But the one who does not love, and we're not talking about who doesn't just make people feel good. We're talking about biblical Christianity. It says, the one who does not love does not know God, for God himself is love, and if you're his people, you're gonna love, you're gonna be his disciples. And if you love the way God defines love, the world's gonna know that Jesus alone is who makes men lovers, who creates communities of faith that are places of peace. I, I just wanna, you know, again, I'm gonna keep sticking things in here. The world longs for this. The world desires this. When there was... Um, Great horror in our world during the very first world war, what we call a world war because we're just always so nearsighted, like this is the first time the world's in conflict. But um, in the late 20th or early 20th century, in the late teens, in the 19, you know, 15 through 25-ish era, the first world war happened. And coming out of the first world war, we're going to say, hey, we can't let that happen again. And so this thing called the League of Nations was formed. It later evolved into what we now know today is the United Nations. The United Nations is the effort of men to bring the nations together again so we would never war anymore, that we would have a place of peace. 
Let me just tell you something. The United Nations isn't doing what it says it wants to do. I've been in war zones during wars. I've seen the little white helmets and the white SUVs and Range Rovers and tanks that are there while all kinds of atrocities are going on and they're supposed to be a peacekeeping force, but they will not put down evil. They will not call right, right, or wrong, wrong. They're there basically to report the United Nations was on hand in Rwanda when the great Holocaust or genocide happened there between the Hutus and the Tutsis. They have the form, if you will, of peacemaking, but none of the power. The nations can't do what God alone can do, but the nations long for what God says he's going to do, which is to create peace between people. It's why when Paul says, listen, people, don't let Anne Rice walk into your community and think for a second that she's walked in the wrong community. But I urge you to walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. He says, with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, be diligent, show constant Spirit, God-provided energy toward making peace with one another and preserving what God has intended, which is oneness among you. The United Nations has never pulled off that oneness, but you know what's really interesting? When the United Nations was built in New York City, they ended up carving into the granite there outside their building biblical verses that talk about that God one day is going to produce something, but the world is always looking for it outside of a relationship with Jesus, who is the one who makes us one. He's the prince of peace. And without him, there will be no peace, which is why it's so important that the nations who are united, whether we come together, Jew and Gentile, barbarian and Scythian, slave and free man, man and woman, we come together, different tribes and races, and we love one another. And when the world sees that, they go, who are you people? Nobody gets along like this. That's why it's such an offense to God when racism and oppressive patriarchy or self-exalting matriarchy is injected into the church. But when the church is like, this is crazy. We've talked about this, right? There was a bunch of us white guys, eight of us that started this thing almost 20 years ago, and now today, because we've just loved who was in our city today, over 90 different nations, people born in 90 different nations are pursuing oneness with me here, sharing our love and our, 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 um, our provisions with one another for the sake of exalting Christ. We are doing what the United Nations can't do because God is the one that can do what the United Nations wants to see happens. What am I talking about? What is on the wall of the United Nations is Isaiah chapter two, verse four. What's Isaiah two, four? Well, let me get you there. This is what Isaiah two, two says. Isaiah two, two says, now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord, which means the government, the established presence of God. It will be established, if you will, the kingdom of God will be established as the chief of the mountains. It is the governance of earth. And then it says, it will be raised above the hills, all the other smaller gatherings, and all the nations will stream to it. Verse three. And it says, and many peoples will come, and they will say, come, let us go to the way of God, to the mountain of God, to the house of the God of Jacob, the God of Israel, who revealed himself, that he may teach us according to his ways, watch this, and that we can walk in his paths because all his ways are peace. And the law will go forth from the city of God. That's what Zion is in scripture. And the word of the Lord will come out of Jerusalem. Now watch, this is the verse. And he will judge between the nations and he will render decisions for many peoples. And because his 
reign is righteous because he's God, because he will teach people how to love, they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. That's the verse etched in the United Nations, that because we exist, there will no longer be war. Nation, the verse continues, will not sword, will lift up sword against one another. And never again will we learn war. We're coming up on 100 years of that baby being in existence, and it hasn't worked out so well. Why? Because there will never be peace without the Prince of Peace. Here's my question. Is there peace here? Is this where the nations unite under one Lord and one King? Do we love one another here? Do we love one another the way God has loved us? And can the world take note? Does the world say, Christians, will you teach us how to get along? Will you teach us how to be one? Will you show us what it means to deny self and care for others? Will you show us how to not make war and not be malicious gossips? Will you show us how not to be hateful and hating one another? Will you show us how to make marriages work? It's why, it's why, guys. Let me tell you something. I know every time I say it, those of you that have been in the context of a failed human relationship, you just go, Todd, it's so painful when you talk about God's intention for marriage because it's not what I was in, and I know it's not what you were in. But it's what we must strive to, and because you have been hurt by humans that have failed to love you, and maybe you were a human that failed to love the way God wanted, it doesn't mean I can't uphold the standard. The scripture says that we are to be single or reconciled when we get married under the name of God, when we don't come together and make a treaty and go, we're gonna make this work as long as it works, but if you break the covenant, if you break the treaty, I'm breaking, I'm breaking relationship. No, we are covenantal marriages that say, I'm gonna love you as Christ loved the church. And I'm staying here. I'm not going anywhere. And that doesn't mean I'm gonna stay here if you're abusive to me. Because love doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. And so I've got to maybe remove myself so you can't act unrighteously to me. But I'm here, and I'm not going anywhere. That's the biblical picture of love. The world rightly has said, you guys are no different than us. You guys are just serial monogamous. You get married until it just doesn't work anymore, and then you move on, and you get married again. And Jesus is saying, man, guys. Now, God doesn't hate divorcees. He hates divorce because he loves people. And we love you. And we want you to experience what God wants. It's why when I sat down a number of years ago to um, try and take the felt need of broken human relationships and to um, encourage people, uh, you know, I, I looked out there. I saw we do some recovery ministries. Our, and and our, our regeneration ministry on Monday nights, you need to know something. The healthiest people at Watermark go on Monday nights. It doesn't mean only the healthy people there, but I can tell you, if you're there on Monday nights at Watermark, you're getting healthy because you realize that life has become unmanageable for you, that you're addicted to a certain way of thinking that isn't the path of peace. You're addicted to a certain way of living to find um, release because uh, you know, through drugs or through alcohol or through some practice or maybe through men or maybe through women, maybe through porn, it doesn't matter. And we're just gonna teach you how to find freedom. And the first step in our recovery discipleship ministry on Monday nights is blessed are the poor in spirit, man. You're powerless to pursue the path of life apart from God. And we introduce you to the God who loves you in your brokenness and as a father wants to restore you. I looked at that and I go, man, if about 12 to 20% of, a, of Americans are struggling with some form of psychological brokenness or a real chemical addiction, man, all of us struggle in, in relational marriages. And so I just sat down one day, I go, what if we provided something that allowed people to come and just go, you know what, I'm in a, I'm in a series of failed relationships. I don't know how to make relationships work. Is there anybody that can help me? 
God is here to heal you. And when he heals you, he can heal the relationships that you're in. Hurt people hurt people. Come find grace in me, and you can extend grace to one another. And so I took the word re-engage. I go, Lord, if we re-engage with you, we could maybe re-engage with one another in a way that would make it feel like we're engaged again. Because we're gonna love one another and be so careful with one another and do everything we can to build one another up. Can I just tell you what the very first thing you're gonna learn if you go to re-engage? And by the way, Valentine's Day is coming up. You want a great gift to give to your spouse. Take him to re-engage. And just say, I wanna work the next 16 weeks or so in the context of biblical community with others who are gonna remind ourselves of biblical principles to make relationships work. Our, our marriage, maybe, you know, there's folks who come there all the time who have already filed for divorce and God does an amazing work to resurrect their marriage. But there are couples that come there all the time that are sevens and they move to eights and eights and they move to nines and nines who wanna pursue being a 10. But what we're gonna remind you of when you show up there is what I wanna remind you of today. And that is just simply this. This is the first thing. I, I took re-engage and I gave a little name to each one of the R, the E, the second E, and N, G, and A, and a G, and there's principles there. And the first one is this. Realize you are powerless to love your spouse the way you promised. You can't do it. You can't do it the way that, that you said and promised you would, the way they dreamed you would, and you can't love. We can't love the way that God designed us to love unless we depend on him. And so in our poverty of spirit, we find what love looks like from God, and then we say, God, that love expressed through the cross is the love that needs to flow through me to my spouse because puppy love isn't working. I love, I love what the, uh, the gal took her husband to a doctor because he didn't feel like he was doing too well, and, and the doctor walked out and looked at him and goes, man, I need to talk to you. I mean, your, your husband does not look good. And she goes, oh, I know. I don't think so either, but he's so kind to the children, right? <laughs> I promise you, there's gonna be a day when your spouse doesn't look good to you. And, uh, and God wants you to learn to love anyway. Because the world just steps out and the world ejects. Jesus says, you can't be my church, beloved, if you don't love one another. It's what marks us. The world will know that Jesus is Lord when we love in a way that only people touched by a supernatural God have loved them look like. It's true that for every 100 people, maybe one out of 100 will read the Bible and 99 will read the Christian. It's true that Christians observe doctrine, but the world observes Christians. What's the world see when it looks at us? If it doesn't see love, we're nothing. We have the form of godliness but lack the power. And I'm gonna tell you, God built this because so many of you are marked by the love of Jesus Christ, not the love of man. This is what love does. Love seeks. Love seeks. Um, the Bible says that Ever since man decided that they didn't need God and kind of went its own way and was at war with one another and at war with God, God sought us. Every single act of God since Genesis 3 on has been a missionary act. God seeks, that's what love does. God demonstrates his love for us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is our mark. You guys have been around here a while. You probably bumped into some of the folks that um, this body graciously says, we want you guys to lead us in the way that we make disciples. And so we, 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 through your kindness, a number of us get to serve you. 
And, um, and our job is to equip you for the work of service. We, we teach you to love. We, we, we help you discover, develop, and deploy your gifts so we can love the world. Because look, this is not about us. I, I always say to pastors, hey, listen, um, who would care if your church went away? Right? Who would care if, if your church, the church that you're a part of, um, didn't exist anymore? If it's only the people that drive there on Sundays for a couple of hours, if they're like, well, now I gotta drive somewhere else. If the only people that care the church is gone are the people that drive to that church, and you don't drive to a church, you are a part of the church, but you know what I mean. If it's a church that just gathers, and if it goes away, it never scatters to bear the fruit of the Spirit in the city and be graceful. If when the church closes down, nobody cares but the people that went to that church, and the church was never God's church to begin with. Jesus says you ought to love in such a way that when you're gone, the world goes, what, what happened to those Christians? We didn't much like their doctrine, but man, they were full of love and grace and kindness. That clinic that they put over there in the most under-resourced part of our town where they, they cared for our children and cared for us and loved us, it's gone. Those group of businessmen that got together to set up um, independent uh, accounts where they matched our money that we saved and they discipled us on how to save and they matched our dollars four to one so we could buy a car and get our own place and get off the streets. Those people are gone. All things that are happening here at Watermark. Those people that helped us deal with our hurts and our hangups, they're gone. Where are they? It's love that ought to mark us. I, I will tell you, you know, if you've been around here long, you've bumped into some of these folks who are on staff and you've probably seen them wearing a Patagonia jacket, maybe with a little brand on it, right? Maybe a North Face jacket, maybe an Under Armour jacket. If you've been here for 20 years, you get one at Christmas and one when we go away on our staff retreat. So you're, you're stacked with what has infinitely been called waterwear. Waterwear has this brand on it, right? <laughs> right? So we're Texans, right? And, and, and Texans have ranches and you ride for the brand. If you, if you worked at a certain ranch and you, you um, dealt with the cattle that were there, it was said that you rode for that brand. And so we put a little brand and it's kind of watermark. And so we took the fact that one of the things that a watermark is is, is, is when a, a flood Waters rise up and then recedes, it leaves a line, a lasting impression. And we believe if we as God's people do what God wants us to do, that long after we're gone, evidence that God's people were there will remain because there'll be a hole, the lack of love, the lack of clinics, the lack of care for the broken, the poor, the oppressed, the widow and the orphan. There'll be a big hole in the foster care system because we left. There'll be a big hole in the way that children who don't have dads are cared for because all the mentors are gone. All things that are happening here. And so anyway, this waterwear that we have, people go, hey, how can I get some of that stuff? And we just, we kind of usually say, well, you take 100% pay cut, you come work 60-hour weeks, and then we give you a $70 vest. That's basically how you get one. <laughs> so if you're interested, come find me, okay? But this, this brand, when we wear it, it really means something to us. Why? Because we're the people of God called by his name. And we want folks, when they bump into us, to go, something different about you. I'm gonna tell you a very humbling story and I want you to understand what I'm saying when I talk about this because I ultimately don't really care. I don't really care about the Watermark brand. I care about who we represent. We are the people of God. We're the church in Jerusalem. It's a Watermark here. And I believe that Jesus wants his church to prevail and be everything that God wants it to be everywhere it is. And so if his church is gonna be everything he wants his church to be, marked by love everywhere, it's got to be here. And so if this little gathering is, is in emblazoned with the name Watermark, we better make sure Watermark means love. Watermark means faith. Watermark means selfless service. Watermark means God, Jesus, exalting obedience. 
And I'm touched by stories like this. My friend John Elmore, this is one of them, was up here at the, if you're in the Dallas campus, up here by Preston and Forest, there's a, there's a Whole Foods up there. He was at the, um, the coffee shop that was up there and there was a barista. And that barista um, was saying to another person who worked there that she was gonna move to California. And she's gonna move to California because she was gonna care for her aging mom. And so John just listened. He goes, you're going to California to care for your mom? Man, that's a really God-honoring thing to do. Do you know that the Bible says that those who honor their mother and father, which doesn't just mean care for them, but if you love your mom and dad and care for them and honor them, do you know that's the first commandment in Scripture that has a promise attached to it, that there'll be blessing with that? I mean, way to go. And the girl kind of looked at him and said, really? What? Well, let me just tell you something. I'm a little concerned because when I go there, I don't have a job. I don't know how I'm going to provide for myself as I try and care for my mom. And John just said, hey, do you mind if I pray for you? And she kind of went, well, no. And so John just reached across and grabbed her hand. And he just prayed that God would help her run into other people out there that would love her and care for her, maybe help her find a job. And that she would run into God's people who could strengthen her and care for her as she becomes a caregiver. And that she would be reminded how much God cares for her, not because she's aging, but because she, like all of us, are sick and have sin. And you love us, God. And may my friend come to know you and love you. And said, amen. And she looked up like, oh my gosh. And right then, a couple of friends that were with him walked up. One of them was my friend Mel, and she had on some water wear. And she saw that, and she goes, John, are you ready? And she looked, and she saw the W on Mel's jacket. And she goes, oh, it's you people. <laughs> I understand. Now, what is it with you people? And John goes, what do you mean? She goes, every single person that comes up here, and there's a lot of us because it's one of the places we eat lunch, that has that W, every single one of you is different. And John goes, it's not us, man, it's Jesus. She says, yeah, 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 I know. There's lots of Jesus people. But I'm just telling you, there's something about those people that wear the W that is different. That was her testimony. Now, I gotta tell you something, I, I, I don't like hearing that. I'm encouraged that she has observed that those of us that are wearing some stupid shirt with a W on it are not like most people she meets in the world because everybody who's a follower of Jesus ought to be like that. But what she was saying is, oh, I have people I serve coffee to all day long who wear cross necklaces and uh, cross earrings. And they're not different, they treat me like everybody else. But you people are different. I want to tell you, my prayer is that every person who understands the love of God expressed through the cross, the love of God that seeks, is different. I think about how my friend Susan is one of those people, right? She seeks. She was at a Walmart, not well, actually, you know, pretty far from here. And um, she met an employee who was stocking the shelves. And because she's a follower of Jesus, she sought this person, just engage him in a conversation, which led for her to um, invite this person to share a meal. She goes, well, I can't meet you anywhere for me. I don't have any transportation. She goes, I'll come and pick you up, and went and picked her up. And as they went and had a meal together, because she was just seeking this person, because she was in that aisle. It was, as a good Samaritan, that was her aisle that she was walking down. There was somebody to love. And the gal, finally, as they were sitting there having dinner, she goes, why, why are you doing this? If you knew who I was, you would have never invited me to dinner, to which Susan replied, if you knew who I was, you would have never said yes to my invitation. <laughs> and Susan went on to share her story, which is one where God delivered her from a lot of guilt and shame. And this woman started crying because she says, my husband's having an affair. And I've got a husband now who has a baby with another woman. I don't know what to do with it. Not only that, I'm a drug user and I've lost custody of my three children. Probably that's the reason my husband's doing what he's doing. And so Susan just sought her with the gospel. She made a decision to follow Christ that night. 
Susan gave her a Bible the next day at work and she inter- and connected her with other believers in the area, invited her to come and assimilate to our body. She goes, I, 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 but I don't have transportation, so they got her connected to another church. That was 2016. 2017, Susan's in that same area at a Kroger and she walks up and lo and behold, there's the person that she had loved on and built into and she was now a part of a believing body and she was in a, a, um, some parenting classes and she was um, getting her life back together and beginning to follow Jesus. And then she met her this past December, just a few short uh, days ago, late in the afternoon, and now she's got her three children back. And God's restoring her because love seeks, because God's people showed up at a Walmart and just said, you're not here to stock shelves so I can buy things as the prices are falling. You're here because God wants me to tell you that you're fallen and that he's made provision for fallen people. Love that. Love seeks. Love just doesn't seek, love serves. <laughs> Jesus said, I'm, I'm, I'm God. I didn't come to be served, but to serve, and to serve all the way to the point of death, I, to give my life as a ransom for many. That's what I see you guys do. I think about our friends over there in Fort Worth who love the Delion family. Who's the Delion family? Well, they're just a family who had a sweet little nine-year-old girl named Caitlin who was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer not long ago. And they lived in Amarillo, and so they, they had to come to um, Cook's Children's in Fort Worth, and they would go there. They were for eight months living at the Ronald McDonald House. And the woman said she would fast and pray for somebody to love her, and she said, God, are you there? Do you care about me? And lo and behold, somebody heard about it who loved Jesus and said, we're gonna serve this family. And so they went and they introduced themselves, and they invited them on the weekends when the husband would come to come and gather with them. And during the weekdays when the husband wasn't there, they would go to the Ronald McDonald House and they would have game nights. they make visits to the park with them and take other kids to the zoo. They brought meals to them there. They visited at the hospital. They invited them into her home. They would write her encouraging letters. They bought coloring pages for their toddlers. They sent care packages to them. They introduced her little girls to others in her age group at the church so she could make friends. They prayed with them, they cried with them, they sent scripture to put it around in their room. And then when sweet little Caitlin didn't win her battle with cancer, they drove to Amarillo and wept with them at their daughter's grave. And the Deleon said, this is our church, away from our home that reminds us that there's a God who's gonna take us home one day and that he's real love serves. Love just doesn't serve, love shares, it's what it does. Right, this is Acts chapter two, 44 and 45. It says that they held all things in common. It says in, in, in verse 45 that they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with one another as anyone might have need. It's what, it's what they did in the early church and it's what's happening right here. It's why God built this place and his renown is increasing because love shares, it's what you've done. We, we have a single mom here who I wish I could tell you her story of how she even came to know the Lord. But she's in a community group with other single moms and, and she had her car, it broke down. And um, she didn't know how she'd get it fixed. So one of the, the dads of one of the girls in the single uh, moms group tried to help her with the car a little bit, but it just didn't work. And so she starts spending $80 a day Ubering to and from work. Just massive debts mounting on her credit cards until finally the community group says, we're part of a larger body. And so they did what we're supposed to do, which is expand the conversation. It came to the the community of faith that's here and said, guys, we're doing all we can to provide for our sister, but she's struggling. In fact, she's struggling so much. This little girl had come out of broken relationship and broken relationship, which is why she's a single mom. She, even though she had professed Christ, said, I don't see right now God being there for me. I think I'm gonna go back to guys and alcohol because I know that works, at least for a season. 
Well, what happened is some friends got around her and said, you don't want to go back there. You know that's debauchery and death. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And guess what? We're his hands and feet. We're here to be what God wants you to be. And the church came around. God's people loved her and started sharing in their abundance. One group said, why don't you come move in with us? A couple said, move in with us. We're closer to your work. And you don't have a car. We'll drive you to and from work. Other people started to try to raise money to buy her a car. In the midst of doing that, we realized we couldn't title her because she's got debts and she's got tickets and she's got fines and couldn't title a car until that was dealt with and she was afraid to deal with it. Another couple bought a house that was in this community group, got her, um, and there was a back house that they were gonna use to, to rent out to kind of supplement their mortgage, but then they realized that, hey, we can serve her even better than that family did that's close to work, we're closer still and have ability to love her. Come live in our back house with your children. And so she moved in there. The people then had raised enough money that they were gonna buy her a car, but before they could, somebody gave her a car to drive for a little bit, and then they realized we could take the money we raised to buy a car, we could pay her fines, we could pay her debts, and then she could get that car titled. Just this week, sweet little Dominique got that car. That's a picture of her. You think she's happy? <laughs> oh, man, she's just, that, that's a thank you, God. Now, that doesn't always turn out that way. Listen, but we want to tell you something. If we have a way to love you and we're not going to enable an irresponsible lifestyle, but you want to walk with Jesus and you walk with us, we're going to do what Acts 2.45 says. We've always done it here. That's how God's built this place. Love sacrifices. I've got so many stories here. I don't have time even to get them to you. I'm, you can see I'm kind of reading them. I just sent out an email to friends this week. I just said, hey, man, let's just talk about the most recent stories of love at work. But love does sacrifice. Love doesn't do the things it wants to do just because it can. Love does what's best for others. And one of the ways we sacrifice is that some of us have a liberty to do things that others don't. And so we love one another in the weaker brethren. And we don't become stumbling blocks to one another. Love sacrifices continually, both in the way that we choose to pursue our freedoms and in the way that we disrupt our life. I think about a family here that was doing Merge, which is our premarital class, and, and they sacrificed by, they had the freedom to live as an empty nester finding this part of their life, but they're working in Merge, and they find out the couple that's there at Merge is living together, and they say the reason they're living together is because they can't afford to be apart. And so the guy just said, okay, if that's really your reason, why don't you come live with us until the months now that you get married? That was the first night they met. That's how God built this place. That's how he builds his fame and his love. Love saves. That's what love does. Love saves. Love dives in and goes to work. This is a, um, a story about my buddy Ryan Wall and the way that he went after his sweet mom. A number of years ago, Ryan trusted Christ here, and when he did, he began to pray for his family and minister to his family, and his family wanted nothing to do with Ryan's newfound faith, but his mother, just last May, was diagnosed with cancer, and so he decided to get a Bible and start journaling in that Bible every day when he was reading prayers for his mom. And after about six months, she gets admitted to the hospital, which was just fairly recently, late last fall. And when she was admitted to the hospital, he went to visit her, and he took that Bible, and he gave it to her. And he said, Mom, I've been writing and praying in this Bible for you. And she said, that's nice. Take it from me and get it out of here. I don't want it to get messed up in my hospital room. I don't want your Bible. Just leave me alone. But not long after that, she didn't want to be alone because she was afraid she was going to die at night. And so Ryan would go up there, not just two or three times during the day, but with the blessing of his wife, begin to spend the night in his mom's hospital room day 
after day, visiting in the morning, in the afternoon, spending the night with her to be there and loving her. And after 40 days of that, she said, hey, do you still have that Bible? And Ryan, who said, I've been really bold with my faith a lot of times, but it was my kindness and my love that served her and was there relentlessly. And when she kept saying, why are you here? He would say, because I love you, Mom, and God loves you, and I want you to see his love for you. They opened that Bible, they spent two hours in it, and the mom embraced Christ, and immediately she said, your dad needs this, the family needs this, the doctors and the nurses need this, everybody needs this piece. Love saves. I love the statement that kindness has converted more people than zeal and eloquence and knowledge combined. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. God built this thing on love, and if love doesn't mark us, then we're not his church. These stories of the renown of Jesus' love lived out through you are what make this place. Love shines. In Matthew 5, this is what Jesus said, let others see your good works so that they may glorify your Father who's in heaven. And people are starting to say, you know, I don't much like their doctor, but what they're doing, I wish there was more of that here. And there's gonna be a lasting impression when the people of God who gather under his name, who are humbling themselves and turning from their wicked ways and loving one another as Jesus wants them to love. When we leave, there's going to be a hole here in this city. It's gonna be the hole of the love of Christ at work through us. That's how he built this. And the people are irresistibly drawn to it. But church, I want you to listen to me because love doesn't just do all these things. It also speaks It does more than just shine. It does more than just save. It does more than sacrifice and serve and seek. Love speaks. It encourages me when people see kindness in my life. I was at a movie premiere on Tuesday. I was invited by the producers and the directors to go see the the movie Unplanned, which is a movie about Abby Johnson. Abby Johnson is a director of Planned Parenthood, uh, one of the largest abortion clinics in the country uh, for years. She was personally directing a Planned Parenthood for almost eight years that took 22,000 lives from mother's wombs. And Abby was, um, was in uh, a situation one day where she was actually invited into the procedure room, something she had not done for eight years. What had happened is that Hurricane Ike was boring down on her facility and they were gonna close it and she knew that some women were gonna be past the date where they could get abortions in Texas and so she wanted to double up some appointments and so she crammed 40 different abortions into one day and she had to bring in an abortion doctor she didn't typically work with and that particular abortion doctor only worked with a sonogram machine and so when he got there, everybody was taken care of and nurses were doing things and nobody could operate the ultrasound machine, the sonogram and so they said, Abby, you gotta go in procedure room two and help out the doctor so she goes in there and she takes that thing and she starts to wave that little ultrasound over the mom's stomach in the the sonogram machine. The doctor says, move it to the right, and she did. And she said, then the doctor kind of inserted the vacuum tube in order to remove the child. And when it got close inside the cervix, into the, um, the, the, the sack where the child was, the baby moved away when it saw it coming. And she goes, the baby's moving. He goes, the baby always moves. And yet she had told moms for years that, hey, your child feels no pain. It's like going to the dentist. We're just removing plaque. It's a glob of cells. And she's looking. The nurse goes, that's ah, a 13-year, because that's how they, they measure the size of the head to know how old the child is. And she sat there and watched in horror as the doctor got that 
tube right up next to the child. And he goes, go, beam me up was his crass words. And they hit the vacuum and sucked out that child limb by limb. And she watched in horror as this child ran from and was destroyed before her eyes. She dropped the sonogram machine and she ran out of the room into the bathroom and she violently got ill and sat there until she could come out and, and resigned immediately. She had no idea what was happening. She wasn't dealing with the truth and the reality. And I think a lot of us aren't either because, man, we are way too silent on that issue and probably a lot of others. But let me tell you this. Listen to me. After the movie was over, um, the producers asked just my thoughts, and I just said, guys, that movie starts with that scene. And I just said, guys, you, 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 can't, um, you can't start that movie with that scene without trying to communicate right before that what's about to happen. And I just said, if, if you're asking me, you know, we made a movie here at Watermark, okay, so everybody's got an idea about how to, what to do with your movie. I go, I've been a producer before. I go, but let me just tell you what I think you should do. I think b before you start that movie, after you get through with the beginning, it should go black on the screen, and then you should put on the screen, this is a true story. Truth can be difficult. If your true story has difficulty and pain, we want you to know that you are loved, and we want to help you. I said, you can put up on that screen, please contact us, healing at watermark.org, by the grace of God, because the love of God is at work here, rescuing people like me and others who have been destructive and foolish with our lives, rescuing people who have made every kind of decision. We have been told that more people through this local church have been cared for in a post-abortive recovery ministry than any local church in the country. I said, you can use, if you don't want to put up your own, they have something at the end of the movie, if you don't want to put that up, just put healing at watermark.org and we'll do everything we can to help men and women who have made a decision to take the life of a child from a womb to help them find the healing and the grace that we've found. But you've got to put that at the front of the movie, not just the back, because people are going to walk. I am so grateful that you guys are trying to speak out and tell people the truth, because gang, I've got to tell you something. When the church doesn't speak, it gets dark. We're salt and light, and, when the, and that which is supposed to prevent decay is corrupt, and that which is supposed to bring light isn't light, then decay and darkness multiply in the land. The church needs to speak. We need to speak the truth in love. That's what Proverbs 31, 8 says, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all the unfortunate. That's what Proverbs 24, 11, and 12 says. It says, do you see those being led away to slaughter taken away to death, those staggering to slaughter, oh, hold them back. I'm not just talking about babies at that point. I'm talking about moms who have been lied to, that this is just like a dental procedure. We need to tell them, hey, you're gonna become unpregnant in a minute, but you're not gonna become an unmom, and you're gonna know that, and we love you. And if you've made that decision, we love you. When I, I told the guy that they should put that, he looked at me and goes, are you a pastor? That was encouraging to me because I've been on trips with my community group before when we've been out there running around and hanging out. Uh, I, we, we one time went fishing, five of us, and we're sitting there, and it wasn't long before we're this fishing guide, and it comes up that we're friends from a church. And one of the other guys says, in fact, one of us is a pastor. And the guy goes, what? One of you guys is a pastor? Huh, I have no idea who it is, but I'm sure it's not him. And he pointed right at me. <laughs> I go, what did I do? So it encouraged me when that guy said to me on Tuesday, are you a pastor? Because he saw tenderness and concern in me. Listen to me. I want you to hear me right now. If you've never heard the words love and forgiveness and healing and abortion in the same sentence, please hear them now. 
Because God loves you. He's not mad at you. He wants healing to come into your life. He's not judging you because of your pain. He wants to rescue you from the darkness and the lies that led you and the fear that led you and all the other reasons. Maybe we as a church didn't project to you that we weren't gonna make you feel terrible because you made a decision. I've heard women say, hey, it was easier for me to get an abortion than to walk into a church and tell them that I had a child out of wedlock. God, forgive us that we projected that. And we love you. And if your true story is riddled with difficulty and pain, we love you. And you can come find healings with hundreds of others of us here, thousands of us. But church, listen, you need to know what's happening and you need to speak. This week, on the 46th anniversary of Roe v. Wade in New York, Governor Cuomo celebrated the fact that New York was gonna be a place that you could carry a child as long as you want so that they can be born or they could be aborted. There is now almost no reason in New York where the, where the likelihood that you are going to be aborted in the womb is well over 33%. Every child conceived in New York State, only about 60% of them survive the womb. And they were celebrating that, that now it's not just 24 weeks, it can go all the way up. This is, this is um, my friend Oscar and Brianna's son that was um, just born 24, 36 hours ago. 48 hours ago, you can kill him in New York. And they celebrated it. They lit the World Trade Center pink to celebrate it. That pro-life people have no privilege in our state, is what he said. We are a pro-choice state, and you can do what you want. And I'm telling you, folks, when the church doesn't speak up, crazy things happen. When the church endorses and turns a blind eye towards slavery, it's a dark time in the nation's history. When the church says, we're not Jews, take the Jews. When the church says, we're not gay, kill the gays. It's a dark time in the church's history. And we are in the middle of a Holocaust and a genocide and infanticide in our day and age that we cannot be silent. And I want you to watch this. Now listen, mom, dad, who's been a part of this, we love you. But too many of you don't know what's going on. I'm not even gonna show you an illustration of a late-term abortion, but this is what happens in abortion. This is an illustration, it's not real, but watch this. My name is Dr. Anthony Levitino. I'm a practicing obstetrician gynecologist and I've performed over 1,200 abortions. Today I'm going to describe a first trimester surgical abortion called suction DNC, dilatation and curatage. This is the most frequently performed abortion and is used typically from 5 to 13 weeks of pregnancy. After administering anesthesia, the abortionist uses a speculum like this. This is placed inside the vagina and opened using this screw on the side, allowing the abortionist to see the cervix, the entrance to the uterus. The cervix acts as a gate that stays closed for the duration of pregnancy, protecting the baby until it is ready for birth. The abortionist uses a series of metal rods called dilators, like these, which increase in thickness and inserts them into the cervix to dilate it, gaining access to the inside of the uterus where the baby resides. The baby has a heartbeat, fingers, toes, arms, and legs, 
but its bones are still weak and fragile. The abortionist takes a suction catheter like this one. This is a 14 French suction catheter. It's clear plastic, about nine inches long, and it has a hole through the center. It is inserted through the cervix into the uterus. The suction machine is then turned on with a force 10 to 20 times more powerful than your household vacuum cleaner. The baby is rapidly torn apart by the force of the suction and squeezed through this tubing down into the suction machine, followed by the placenta. Though the uterus is mostly emptied at this point, one of the risks of a suction DNC is incomplete abortion. Essentially, pieces of the baby or placenta left behind. This can lead to infection or bleeding. In an attempt to prevent this, the abortionist uses a curette to scrape a lining of the uterus. The curette is basically a long-handled curved blade. Once the uterus is empty, the speculum is removed and the abortion is complete. The risks of suction DNC include perforation or laceration of the uterus or cervix, potentially damaging intestine, bladder, and nearby blood vessels, hemorrhage, infection, and in rare instances, even death. Now, gang, I just want to say that that's what's happening in our land. Over the last 46 years, almost 60 million fellow citizens of our country have been silently destroyed because we believe in the right for people to choose. And love speaks. This is not just an issue we can decide what we think about this. The scriptures are really clear about God valuing human life and what he thinks of that. It's also very clear of what God thinks about his love for sinners, of which I'm one. And if you're here and you've been a part of an abortion decision, we want to help you. Healing at watermark.org. Or if you're a woman, a woman who's been through that, we'll meet with you and add you to the number of those who find freedom and peace in Christ. Fathers, will follow up with you. But all of us, shame on us if love doesn't speak. Not just the way we admonish each other in our unruliness, but when we say unto the world, folks, this is wrong. And on our watch, I don't ever want the future generation to go, I thought you were God's church during that time of slavery, during the Holocaust of the Jews. Why'd you turn a blind eye to that? You can say you do not care, but never again can you say you do not know. Love speaks. Love seeks. Love saves. And love shines. Father, let us love in your name. If there's anybody here who needs just to see the love of God, I pray they would see the cross. They would remember the songs that we sang. They would remember what I said, that you made him, Jesus, who, though he was rich, eternally with you, very God of very God, you made him poor through the incarnation. Yeah. Okay. Father, we just pray that you would help us. We care for our friend right here. Doctors are on the way. You guys can pray with me. It's okay. Help us, Lord. Help us, Father, to love one another. If there's somebody in this room who needs to know the love of God, may they not leave until they run into one of your people. In Jesus' name.